We're going to continue this morning our study in 1 John. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2 verses 28 through chapter 3 verse 3. If um, you haven't gotten an outline, I did put an outline on the, the side table over there. May be helpful to follow along. I'll go ahead and give that to you here momentarily, but there is an outline on the table. So again, First John, I'm turning there as well. Chapter two, verse twenty-eight through three, verse three. I've titled this morning's sermon "The Reality of Hope." And now, little children, abide in Him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, I titled this morning's sermon, The Reality of Hope, And the truth is that the reality of hope in Christ's return should produce, and the lives of believers should produce, one, confidence of salvation, two, assurance of righteous living, three, anticipation of things to come, and four, sanctification in life. Now, I want to begin, before we actually start looking at the text, I want to begin with, with two truths, if you will, or two, two uh, pieces of information uh, that I think we need to examine before we move forward, which will enable us to have a better understanding, I think, of what we're going to look at concerning the reality of hope. And, and the first one is this. I want to define biblical hope for you. Okay? Hope is not wishful thinking. Like, man, I really hope that happens. Yesterday, I was excited to watch Oklahoma State thump Baylor. But prior to the game, I was thinking, man, I really hope they win. But I didn't know that they were going to win. I wanted them to win. But, you know, it was a toss-up going into it, right? Biblically, that's not hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not want. It's not like. It's not desire. I want to give you two phrases that really define biblical hope. And the first one is this. It's confident expectation. Biblical hope is confident expectation. Having hope is having a confident expectation of what will come to pass. I have hope in Christ's return. That means I confidently expect his return. It's not simply wishful thinking. It's not simply something I want to come to pass. I mean, I do want it to come to pass, right? But I confidently expect his return. The next phrase regarding hope is this. It's absolute assurance. Absolute assurance of things to come. 
Having hope is having absolute assurance. So to say that I have a hope in Christ's return is to say that I have absolute assurance of his return. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture that briefly give us this picture of what hope biblically is, I think. Let's look at Romans, um, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25. Romans 8, verse 24 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. And we wait for it patiently. Why? Because it's an assured thing. Because we confidently expect it. I wait for Christ's return, right, in the context of today's passage, patiently, right? Because I have confident expectation in his return. It's a sure thing. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, chapter 1, we see this connection between hope and between faith. And again, this idea that it's a, 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 an assured thing, right? Confident expectation. Now faith, Hebrews 11.1. 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So again, today, when we talk about hope, right? Biblically, scripturally, as you're studying, as you come across a passage dealing with, with hope. Again, it's confident expectation. It's dealing with that which is an assured thing. So when we're talking about hope in Christ's return, we're talking about confidently expecting it because it is an assured thing. All right, so that was the first thing I wanted to examine before we went into the passage. The second one is this. Jesus is returning, right? Jesus is returning. It's a guaranteed thing. I have a confident expectation in it because Scripture clearly proclaims it. So just three truths that I've picked concerning Christ's return. I think we could exhaust it and, and still, well, we probably couldn't exhaust it, okay? But just three truths that I've picked this morning that I want to just be reminded of concerning Christ's return. And I think the first one is probably the most important that we need to focus on um, uh, just daily and regularly in our lives. And it's this, Christ's return is imminent. That means at any moment Christ could return. We know that there are, are different uh, eschatological end times views, right? Even within this church, we have, we have different views. I preached on that last uh, December, January. Despite all of that, the one thing that all of us come together in agreement on is this. Christ is returning and his return is imminent. Peter proclaims this. Uh, let's look at Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter three verses, uh, or sorry, just verse ten. But the day of the Lord, the turn of Christ, the day of the Lord will come what like a thief, and then the heavens will pass with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Y'all know when a thief is coming? Oh, right, it's unexpected. I don't expect a thief to come and break into my house tonight. It could happen, right? But I don't know. It's unexpected. Christ's return will be like that. 
meaning we don't know, meaning it's imminent. At any moment, it could happen. So the return of Christ is imminent. Next thing is this, 2 Timothy 4, 1. Second Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4.1 concerning the return of Christ says, I can get there. I charge you, this is Paul talking to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Timothy tells, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. But the thing that I want to point out here is this. Christ Jesus is who is to what? Judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Christ's return is imminent. And he's returning to judge, right? The quick and the dead, your version might say. To judge the living and the dead. Now, now as believers, we don't have to fear his judgment, right? Because Jesus has been judged by God the Father on our behalf. But nonetheless, it's the truth that as believers, one, we need to be mindful of, thoughtful of, which really should bring us to rejoicing, knowing the fact that he's going to return to judge, and that judgment's going to, what? It's going to pass over us because, in fact, it fell on him for us. All right. The third truth concerning Christ's return is this. Revelations 21.5. I'm going to read 21, 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he, Christ Jesus, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Christ's return is imminent. He's returning to judge. And he's returning to make all things new. And believer, that all things new means you. Death and sin, gone. No more. Which again should motivate us and excitement looking forward to that day. Okay, now to our text for this morning with those little bits of information just in the back of our mind. Again, I think they'll help us grasp this this text a little bit better. We're going to look at, uh, again, 1 John 2. We're going to start in verse 28. We said that hope in Christ's return should produce, the first thing we're going to examine in 28 is this, should produce confidence in or of salvation. John says, and now little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. To abide in Christ means to persevere in faith, to to keep the faith. Specifically in the context of this passage, it's to keep the faith or abide in him as we look forward to his return. This is a picture of of having hope in his return. It's as if John is saying, beloved, little children, right? hope in Christ's return. Confidently expect his 
return. And in doing so, he says, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If we have this hope, we can then have this confidence and not shrink in shame at his coming. Um, Hope in Christ's return should produce confidence in and or of salvation. And the confidence that John speaks of here refers to a boldness, a boldness now and a boldness on the day of judgment. We should have this confidence or this boldness as we look forward and hope to his return because we know that he has already been judged on our behalf, right? And because Christ has been judged on our behalf, we won't shrink back in shame under the weight of judgment. Ultimately, it's confidence in knowing that our sin has been dealt with, that Christ, in fact, has dealt with it. Let's look at um, Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 12, concerning our sin, the psalmist proclaims what? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. Beloved, if you have been saved, your transgression, your sin, as far as God is concerned, right, has been removed as far as the east is from the west. It doesn't mean that you don't sin. It doesn't mean that you won't sin, right? But when God looks upon you concerning your sin, when God looks upon me concerning my sin, Right? The psalmist proclaims that that sin, as far as God's concerned, as far as the east is from the west, and I don't know about you, but uh, we can't measure it. I can't measure it. How far is the east is from the west? Well, it just keeps going, right? When God looks at you, He doesn't see your sin, He sees the righteousness of His Son. That's why when we now, here, look forward to the return of Christ, right? When we hope. In Christ's return, that hope should produce a confidence in our salvation because we know on that day, right, that that judgment's going to pass over us because as far as God is concerned, our sin, as far as the east is from the west, it's gone. It's been dealt with. It's been handled. Christ has covered it. I was thinking about this, this verse and this passage concerning the, uh, the, the believer who struggles with their salvation? I think there's times that all of us have probably reached a point where we're just we're, we're examining ourselves and we're questioning. I mean, am I am I truly saved? Am I am I truly born again? And as we've been going through this um, this text in John, right? I mean, we've been forced at, at numerous times to examine ourselves, right? John has been forcing the church. God, really, through John, has been forcing the church, forcing us to examine ourselves to see if you're in in the faith, right? Now, I've mentioned this. I know Randy's mentioned this. It's not that repentance is just a one-time deal, right? Like, I repented once. God saved me, right? Turned from sin. Turned to Christ. We've, we've talked at that. But as believers, right, is there a continuance, if you will, of repentance in our lives, right? Am I continuing to, to turn from sin and, and to turn to Christ? Basically, is there evidence of salvation in that regard? Okay? This isn't so much so what John is, is addressing concerning confidence and salvation. I, I think it's this. I think that as believers, as we just go through the trials and the pitfalls of life, 
And at times we, we question maybe our salvation or we struggle with it. What John is saying, he's saying, I hope in Christ's return. Look forward to the return of Christ. And as you do as a true believer, as you look forward to Christ's return, right, God's going to give you hope. He's going to give you confidence, assurance, and the fact that you are truly saved, that you're truly born again. So, so for the believer that's, that's struggling, I, I talked with a, a dear brother. This was months ago now. And one of his struggles was, man, I, I, just, I just deal with, you know, I mean, knowing that I'm saved. I mean, I know that I've, I mean, I've asked the Lord to forgive me. I've, I've turned away from this and I've turned to him. I mean, that's a picture of repentance and faith. And, and I know I've done this. I've, I've examined myself according to scripture, right? But yet I just still struggle sometimes with this feeling of... I mean, I know that I've done these things and, and I believe that I'm saved, but yet sometimes I just struggle with that, that feeling. Maybe it's just an emotional feeling. Like I know it in my head, but not my heart. I just kind of struggle with it, you know? And at the time I hadn't examined this passage in John, but my advice to him would be, well, we want, of course, as believers, we do want to examine, examine and continuously examine the fruit in our life, okay? But the other thing that we need to be doing uh, concerning confidence in salvation Right? Assurance of salvation, if you will. According to John here, is to hope in Christ's return. And as we hope in his return, we take the focus off of us. We put the focus on Christ. Right? And as we continue to focus on him, God's going to give us that confidence. So the second, the second point, the second truth uh, concerning hope in Christ's return, uh, in verse 29 we see that hope in Christ's return should produce an assurance of righteousness. Verse 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you know that he is righteous, Jesus is righteous. Let's look at 2 Corinthians real quick. Just a reminder for us. That, that Jesus is righteous. Second Corinthians uh, chapter five, verse twenty-one. Second Corinthians five twenty-one says this: For our sake, He, He here being God the Father, made Him, Him being Jesus, He made Him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is righteous. Has always been righteous. Will always be righteous. And this, this passage or this verse in First John says this. That if we know that he is righteous, we may be sure that everyone who practices key word here, practices righteousness, has been born of him. The emphasis here is on practicing righteousness, not possessing righteousness. He's dealing with righteous living, talking about external deeds and, and works. Listen, the, the point of this verse isn't that we can look at someone else's works, someone else's deeds, or, or our own, and we can make a determination that since that person lives right, he or she must be a Christian. 
And so what I'm not advocating here and what John's not advocating here is that we go out and we look at people and we say, all right, I'm looking at his deeds and those are righteous deeds, right? He's doing good works, so he must be a Christian. And this person over here is not doing good works, so this person's not, not a Christian. One, we know this. There are a lot of moral people, as the world sees it, that are on their way straight to hell, Okay. So we can't just simply look at someone and say, well, well, they have good works, so they're saved. Right? Some of the most moral, as the world sees it, people, right, I think are the Mormons. I've got a friend who is, uh, is a Mormon, and, and I love him, him dearly. I, and and I'm, not, I'm not speaking of all of them. I don't know, I don't, but I know Rocky. And I tell you what, outwardly how he lives his life from a moralistic standpoint, how he carries himself, Rocky is, I mean, I would say this, his works are amazing, incredible. When we get down to the hard, cold facts of who Jesus is, right, his theology is completely unbiblical, okay? We know that, that, that moralism doesn't save anyone, and moralistic living isn't, it can't be just simply an indicator of one's salvation. Again, that's not the purpose of this, this, this verse, okay? The point of this verse is to remind us that any righteousness that we possess or that we demonstrate via works or deeds, right, is the result of Christ's righteousness working in us and working through us. That, that's the point of this verse. So I'm not saying, I'm going to go out and I'm not advocating, even my buddy Rocky, I'm not going to go out and I'm going to look at him and say, hey, hey look, look, Rocky, he's got, a, uh, he's got moralistic living, he's saved, right? No, we're going to talk about Jesus and who Jesus is and who God is, right? And whether or not he has, has true faith and the true living God, right? Now that might determine whether or not the man is, is, is saved or not. But his living, one way or the other, doesn't necessarily make him a righteous or not righteous Person, And again, that's the point of this verse. It's to remind us that any righteousness that we have, any righteousness that we display is a result of Christ's righteousness. Right? Paul in Romans chapter 3 says what? There's, there's no one righteous. There's no, one, no not one. Right? And he's quoting a couple psalms in that. Right? We know that I think it's Isaiah, is it, that, that proclaims that our righteousness is as filthy rags. So see, as people, we have no righteousness. And even as believers, the only righteousness that we have, right, or the only righteousness that we do, is a result of Christ's righteousness, not ours. See, our righteousness is the fruit of Christ's righteousness. Our righteousness is the fruit of salvation, salvation being God's work, not man's. Our righteousness is not the root of salvation, but the fruit of salvation, which is Christ's work. So having hope in Christ's return, and this is what John is proclaiming here, that having hope in Christ's return assures us that righteous living can be a reality. Assures us that Christian living, as God commands in His Word, can be a reality. 
And it does so not because of us, but because of Christ. Again, the whole point, and we're going to see this as we go through this, as we, as we look forward in hope of Christ's return, what are we doing the whole time that we do that? We're taking our focus off of us, and we're putting our focus on Christ. And as we put our focus on Christ, we can have confidence in salvation. As we put our focus on Christ, right, we can have assurance right, of righteous living. We can have assurance of righteousness. The third thing that hope should produce in us as we look forward to Christ's return is the anticipation of glorification or the anticipation of, I put here things to come. I think I put the glorification in the notes. Let's look at uh, chapter 3 of 1 John, verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The first century church was experiencing terrible persecution, um, martyrdom. The the church itself was just um, uh, suffering under false teachers, which we know as we began 1 John. I mean, he was encountering false teachers and false teachings, right? The the church and the people, right? They're they're struggling. They're, They're suffering. And, and John, I, I love this in verse, verses 1 and 2 because, because John offers them this, this bit of encouragement. And, and it's for them and, and it's for us, right? And in this he says, see what kind of love the Father has, has given us? I love the NIV, um, how it translates that first part of verse 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us? I mean, what a great encouragement for the believer that's, that's, that's downcast that's suffering under trials, persecution, hardship, heartache, whatever the thing is. Remember the love that God has lavished on you. A love that has resulted in you becoming his child. John's encouraging them amidst this this trouble. See what kind of love the Father has given us? That we should be called children of God? In his love for us, He's made us his children. I mean, this is incredible, right? I mean, this should encourage us. This should motivate us. Let's look at Romans chapter 8 again. Romans 8, verses uh, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that, may, in order that we may also be glorified with him. I mean, this is incredible news. 
It should encourage us. It should have encouraged the first century church. It should encourage us today. It should encourage the, the church to come. Listen, in verse 2 he says, of John, uh, again, chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The church was struggling, right? He said, the reason why the world doesn't... He said, sorry, um, he said, the reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. So there is a, there is a tension between, and, and I think that's putting it lightly, but there's a tension between the world and the church. It's a tension that can't be alleviated. John, um, John 15. John 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, what? The world hates you. James 4, 4 says that we know that friendship with the world is at enmity with God. Right? Why? Because the world is at enmity with God. Enmity meaning opposed, a hostile towards, Right? So, so John reminds them of, of, of that, of really us, of our position with the world as, as believers. One, And it's almost as if he's saying, understand that, that, that you're struggling right now, right? that you're suffering. Be encouraged. Right? Take heart because you are children of God. Right? And I know, that, I know that there's tension now between you and the world. But it's almost as if he's saying, but, but don't take it personal, right? Because it's not you the world hates, it's, it's Christ. Right? I mean, have you ever thought about that? I mean, you know, I've thought about that just even as I've, I've witnessed other people. There was one guy in Oklahoma City I was telling, I don't know who it was not too long ago, I was telling him about this guy in Oklahoma City. I thought he was going to break my nose. I mean, he got mad. I started to witness to him, and, and the conversation was going good. And then he started asking me about sin and asking me if I thought that, that, that children were sinners. And I said, well, yeah. And at that point, it was gloves were off. And I thought, I really did. I thought he was going to just punch me. And, and as I've, I've thought about that, you know, I didn't take that personal. And now looking back, I'm not going to take it personal. It's not me that he hated, right? It's not me that he wanted to, well, it might have been my, my face that he wanted to punch. But, but it's not me that, that, that he hated. It was, it was God that he hated. It was, it was Christ that he hated. So in that, it's like John is saying, listen, don't, don't take it personal. It's not you that they hate. I mean, they do hate you, but it's not because of you. It's because of Christ, right, that they hate you. I mean, listen, guys, if I'm going to be hated, let it be because of Christ. I mean, really, if you're going to suffer in life and if you're going to be hated by others, let it be because of Christ. I mean, I've even thought about that in, in, in life regarding like death. Like I thought, you know, there are a lot of ways to die, many of which I would prefer just to pass over and not die like that. But if I'm going to die a miserable life, let it, let it be because of Christ, right? Let it have meaning and let it have a purpose. Let it be because of, because of him. And John continues, I think, to encourage them here in verse 2. 
He says, Beloved, again, I'm going to read this. I know I read it a few moments ago, but I'll read it again. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What we will be, he's talking about glorifying. Look forward to the time that sin is no more. Look forward to the time that death is no more. That sickness is no more. All gone. All new. See, hope in Christ's return should give us an active anticipation of our glorified state. As we look forward to the day that Christ returns, We should be looking forward to the fact that, again, sin is no more. Death is no more. And as we do that here and now, right, that should affect our lives today. That should affect that. That reality should affect how we live now. And it should affect it in such a way that, that we seek to glorify Christ even more, right, and crucify self even more. I once heard a story. Uh, it was from a, a pastor on the radio. Or I heard it on the radio. Uh, Alistair Begg was the pastor. And he was telling a story about a man in his church um, who was out with a bunch of co-workers. And the co-workers had invited this gentleman to, to go to a, um, a strip club with them. And the man said, rightfully, Christian, believer, the man rightfully said, no, I'm not, I'm not going. I, I can't go. And they pressed, and they said, no, you've you got to come. It's what we're doing. It's, it's, we, we want you to. And the man said, no, I'm not going to come. And so this, this proceeded on and on, and finally they, whatever. He's not going to come, so let's go. And as the story continued, a couple of days later, one of the other men that went had asked this first man, why, why didn't you want to come with us? Why, why didn't you come with us, right? And, and his response wasn't, well, because it's sin, right? His response wasn't, well, because the Bible says so, right? And, and those, those are right, okay, don't get me wrong. It, it, I think it is sin, and, and I think the Scriptures clearly speak against doing those things, right? But that wasn't his response. His response as to why he said no and why he wouldn't go is this, because Jesus is coming back, because Christ is returning. See, his hope and Christ's imminent return was affecting how he lived here and now. And it should be affecting us how we live here and now. Okay, final, the final point we're going to look at uh, in this passage today comes from uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. And it's this. Hope in Christ's return should produce sanctification in life. Verse 3 says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I think that this final verse really summarizes um, this whole passage. And, and it's this. Hope in Christ's return should have a sanctifying effect on our lives actively, present. Of course, purification in the life of the Christian is sanctification. 
that is a, a growing, if you will, in holiness, becoming more like Christ as we become less and less like the world. That is loving Christ more, desiring Christ more as we, if you will, hate uh, this world more and more. That is the, the world system. That is, that is the sin and the evil and, and the wickedness, right? Loving Christ more, hating sin more. See, these things, these four main things that we've been looking at this morning, these things that should result by hoping in Christ's return are really a part of sanctification, right? Having a, a, a confidence in salvation is part of sanctification, right? a part of that progressive, that ongoing sanctification that believers experience and should experience in their lives, right? Having an assurance of righteous living, because Christ is our righteousness, right? A part of sanctification for the believer, right? Having an anticipation of glory, of being like Him, again, a part of sanctification in the lives of believers. So the reality is this. One, as believers, we should be actively hoping in Christ's return. It should be something that as believers, right, that is a normal part of our, I guess, lives or, or thought process. I'm, I'm not saying that we should be consumed in one sense by, by Christ's return and that every, everything that happens geopolitically we're like, oh, oh that's, that's a sign. That's, that's evidence. I'm, I'm, that, that's not what I'm, I'm advocating, right? I'm not, I'm not addressing that either way right now. But what I'm saying is as believers, we should be actively hoping, confidently expecting his imminent return. For the sole fact that it glorifies him as we take the focus off of ourselves and we put it on Christ second reality is this, that there should be evidence in our lives that we're doing that. There should be evidence in our lives that we're hoping for his return. And John gives us this evidence in part right here in this text, right? We should have a growing, and I'm going to say a growing because we know that, listen, God's work in us and through us isn't done, Right? As believers, we're not just saved and all of a sudden we're perfect and we've got it all figured out, right? It's a process, right? But there should be a growing in our confidence of salvation, our confidence of what Christ has done in us and through us. There should be a growing, if you will, assurance of righteous living, that we as believers can live as God expects us to live, not because of us, but because of Christ because of who he is, because of what he has done. There should be an, anticipa- uh, uh, an anticipation of glorification. We should anticipate that. As believers, we should long for that. I tell you what, I'm excited. I think that, all right, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, there's two things that he did that I'm really excited. I mean, there's lots, okay, so I'm not 
just making a single list, and this is it, so don't, don't hold me to it. But I'm excited by the fact that he ate, okay, because I'm thinking we're going to get to eat food in heaven, and I like to eat, okay, I really do. And so, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, uh, be completely dogmatic about the fact, but I believe that in heaven, in, in glory, right, we're going to get to eat, and, and my, my evidence would just be like, I know that Christ ate, and so I'm really hoping that as believers we get to eat once we've been glorified. If not, that's okay. We'll be with Christ. All right? The other thing is this. All right, Jesus, right, what did he do? He wasn't bound after he rose from the dead. He wasn't bound by time and space. I mean, he walked through walls. You know, like he, he, he wasn't in the upper room, and then he was in the upper room. So I think it's quite possible that that. In our glorified states, I can't fully comprehend heaven and what the comings and goings and all that's going to be. But I don't think we're going to be bound by time and space like Christ wasn't bound in time and space. So we might be able to walk through walls by, like, like Jesus walked through walls. Right? I mean, that's cool to think about that, right? That, that excites me. But, but here's the truth. Here's what excites me the most about glorification. Right? Here's what excites me the most about looking toward the day right? that I see Christ face to face, and it's this. Not so much that this body of death is, is done away with. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. No more death, no more sickness, none of that. No more sin. This body of sin and its resulting death is gone. And I long for the day that this person's sin is finally no more. And I long for it primarily for His glory and His sake, but also for mine. And the final thing is the evidence that should be in our lives that we're hoping for Christ's return is present sanctification. There, there should be evidence, right? We should see a sanctifying work in our lives as a result. So if you're hoping in Christ's return, right, and if you're a believer, you should be. If you're hoping in Christ's return, keep your focus on Him and excel. I want to excel at this, church. I want you to excel at, at this, right? And if you're not, if you're not hoping in Christ's return, then I would simply say, why? Right? And I think you need to ask yourself, why? Right? And ask Him that He would enable us, right, to desire it. And to excel all the more that we would take our focus off of us and that we would place our focus on Him. Again, it's for His glory. I mean, these things, these four evidences that we examine, right, it's for our good. I mean, all these things are for our good. They, they really are. But it's primarily for Christ's glory. And that's why we should see. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to dismiss us in prayer. Tim left. We're not going to have normally we do music at the end and we do all that. I know the weather's coming down. I can hear the ice. So I'm going to go ahead and dismiss us in prayer at this time. Just ask everybody to be safe going home. Be cautious of crazy drivers and and, and slick roads. And, And more importantly or most importantly, as we go forward with this week, right, Thanksgiving is Thursday, right, that we would truly spend time in Thanksgiving to God for Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf, what we could never do for ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you and we thank you again for who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do, and that's come back. You're going to come back to judge the quick and the dead. 
You're going to come back to make all things new. And Lord, I long for that day. I think we collectively as a church long for that day. And so again, in that, Jesus, I would ask that you would come quickly. But until you come, Lord, I pray, one, that you would continue to save. Continue to save as many as you can save. And that you would continue to sanctify us. Continue to sanctify your church. And again, that you would do it for your glory. You would do it for our good. And until that day, Lord, until you return or until you call us home to you, I pray that we would never take our eyes off of you. I pray that we would hope, we would eagerly and confident expectation anticipate the day that we see you face to face. And until that day, we would grow to know you more and we would grow to love you more. Again, Jesus, we love you and we praise you. And it is in your precious and your holy name for your sake that we ask these things. Amen. All right. Everybody be safe going home.